Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, soulcitychurch.com. to be with you all, whether whether you're here in this room, whether you're worshiping online, if we haven't maybe had the chance to meet yet, hello, my name is John, uh, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and I want to just dive right into the conversation that you all were just having. What was something in your family growing up that you just never talked about, or maybe you weren't even allowed to talk about? Uh, a little glimpse into my childhood, I grew up in a Scandinavian Midwestern family, which if you're not familiar with that culture... That means that we barely talked at all, um, much less talked about the hard things. And and something that I have noticed is that if we don't talk about something growing up, it, it becomes very hard for us to talk about it once we become adults. And I think there's a lot of topics for many people that generally fall into this category. I think one topic that is a bit taboo, not just in families, but in culture, is the topic of money, right? We do not talk about money. Big businesses love to brag about it. Rappers love to rap about it. Normal, everyday people just get weird sometimes when they talk about it. You have felt this if you've ever had to ask for a raise at work, right? If you've ever been in a dating relationship or in a marriage where you had to have a discussion about finances, you you feel this every single time you're out to eat with a friend and the bill comes to the table and you could just have like a sensible, calm conversation around who should pay, but what do you do? The dreadful do do Like, no me, no me, no me, even though you know you've paid the last six times. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. Uh, another topic I think that, uh, that sometimes can be a little taboo or hard to talk about is politics, right? I, I had this firsthand experience just a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I was speaking at a middle school retreat up in Wisconsin, and one day at lunch, just over chicken nuggets, a, an eighth grade girl turns to me out of nowhere and goes, So you voting for Biden or Trump? (laughs) And I watched her small group leader shrivel into a ball of anxiety and discomfort. I don't think it helped that I told her I was just voting for Jesus. So um, it's a way to, as a politician would say, pivot in that moment. But lucky for you, lucky for all of you, we are not going to talk about money or politics today. So that's okay. However, we are going to talk about a topic that I think uh, a lot of families find hard to discuss and a lot of people find uncomfortable to discuss, especially if we ever talk about it in the context of church. And because it is uncomfortable, actually, as a way to ease you into our conversation, I'm not even going to say the word at first. Like, I'm just going to put it on the screen as a little exposure therapy for you. Just as a way to ease us into the conversation. Are you ready? Here's what we're talking about today. (laughs) If this is your first time with us at Soul City Church, you chose a great week. And if you are here with your parents, I'm sorry. That's what I can say. Uh, if you've been with us, as Jeannie mentioned, the last couple of weeks we have been in this series called The Four Loves, where we're examining different kinds of love that you and I experience in our lives. In week one, Pastor Brandon talked about friendship love. Last week, Pastor Jarrett talked about the love that exists within our families. And I drew the short straw. So here we are. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as important as those topics are, 
I would argue that there is a type of love that is just as, if not more prevalent in our day-to-day -day lives and certainly within our culture. And the Greek language, which is the language primarily of the New Testament in the Bible, the Greek language would describe it by using the word eros. Eros, or in our language, that would be erotic love, sexual love, romantic love. Again, I actually believe that this type of love is just as, if not more present and prevalent in our day-to-day -day lives than the love of our friends or even than the love of our families. Because if you think about it, in so many ways, sex has kind of become the currency of our culture. Hence the old school marketing adage, sex sells, right? Any good marketer will tell you that the majority of the advertisements that you see are not really selling you a product, but they are actually selling you how using that product will make you more sexually desirable. Y'all remember the old Axe cologne ads? <laughs> I used that in seventh grade. <laughs> Beware if you walked by me in the hallways. Uh, not just in advertising, but in books and in television and in Hollywood, sex is now depicted at rates and in ways that would have left our grandparents' generation absolutely shell-shocked. They would not know what to do with too hot to handle, okay? <laughs> they would have no idea. And even beyond that, estimates would now tell us that the pornography industry now grosses up to $100 billion a year. To give you some context, that is more than TikTok, Twitter X, Snapchat, and Instagram combined. In other words, porn is now as profitable and as pervasive as social media itself. If you live in the Western world in 2024, sex is everywhere. Everywhere other than, it would seem, the church. <laughs> For the most part, the modern church has been at best, silent, and at worst, shaming when it comes to conversations like this around sex. If those conversations do happen at all, strangely enough, they are often reserved for youth groups and student ministries. I myself grew up within a, a time in the church where American evangelicalism, which was the tradition I grew up in, was hyper-fixated on a thing that came to be known as purity culture. This was an intense focus on abstinence, specifically for people in their pubescent and post-pubescent years. This was a potentially well-intentioned movement that in the long run proved to have some pretty harmful repercussions. And like a lot of things, was particularly hard on young women. Uh, whether you grew up in the church or not, and whether you had a, a training in purity culture like myself, or if you had some form of religious abstinence training, if your church talked to you about sex at all growing up, chances are your church stopped talking to you about sex when you became an adult, which is ironically around the same time most people start having it. And so we have this culture that is constantly depicting sex and constantly thinking about sex, but is rarely talking about sex in a thoughtful or healthy way. And we have a church that, for the most part, seems like it wants to ignore that there is a sexual part of you at all, 
And so obviously there is a lack of healthy, thoughtful conversation around sex in the church. And so if we have a culture that overexposes sex, and we have a church that over-restricts sex, but both of them under-discuss sex, then where does that leave you and me? Whether you're single, married, widowed, divorced, wherever you might be in your life, where does that actually leave us in trying to understand what God thinks about this? Or what God actually desires for us in our lives when it comes to sex. And so in the words of the great theologian duo, Salt and Peppa, <laughs> let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach under the seat in front of you and grab a Bible, because you don't want to hear what I say about this. Let's hear what God says. So grab a Bible, and here's what we're going to do today. We're actually going to split the room in half. And so if you are over here to my left or over on house right, you are actually going to open up to the book of Song of Songs, chapter 1. That's on page 5. 47 in your Soul City Bible. If you're over here to my right, you are going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is on page 927 in your Soul City Bible. We're going to walk through both of these passages together today. We're going to start over here to my right with my 1 Corinthians folks. Now to give you a little context, the book of 1 Corinthians is actually not a book at all. It was originally a letter that was written by one of the early church founders and leaders, a guy named Paul, and he wrote it to a very large church community. And the point of this letter was to instruct this church community on what it looks like for them to live in the ways of Jesus. And Paul is, like we are today, discussing this specific aspect of our lives. This is a much longer passage, but we're actually going to catch it right at the end in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says this, flee or run away, get away from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples or dwelling places of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, this passage in 1 Corinthians, actually the, the chapter of 1 Corinthians 6, uses a phrase a couple times, but we just read it once, that was actually pretty popular throughout the New Testament. And that phrase is sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word most commonly used that is translated as sexual immorality is actually not this word eros that we're talking about. Uh, the, the word actually doesn't refer to love at all, but the word most often translated as sexual immorality is the word porneia. And porneia, if you can guess, is where we get our modern word for pornography. But what you need to understand is that this passage and the New Testament as a whole is not talking about pornography in the way that we understand it. But porneia, or sexual immorality, refers to any sort of commodification of sex. It also refers to any type of sexual act that steps outside of God's designed and desired place for it. And actually, within 1 Corinthians 6 itself and other places within the New Testament, we get a lot of different examples of this. But we also see different examples of this all throughout stories in the Old Testament as well. 
if you've ever read stories in the Old Testament, some of them are pretty graphic. And what they're doing is, is they're depicting these different places and times where sex was used as a way to gain or exert power over somebody else. Or, or when sex was used as a tool for abuse or adultery or even less extreme forms of sexual immorality, like when sex is manipulative in any way, or selfish, or when it's simply used to fulfill a bodily desire and nothing else. In short, there are actually many, many forms of porneia, or sexual immorality. And while the Bible does provide us with a lot of examples, the Bible also doesn't give us a comprehensive list. Like nowhere in the Bible are you gonna find a full list on what sexual acts are considered immoral in the eyes of God and which ones are considered okay. That doesn't exist. And so what that means for you and I is we are actually invited as the people of God to exercise wisdom in this area. To actually invite God through God's word, by God's spirit, to help guide us and lead us for what would be considered porneia in our lives and what would not. Because like we said, while there are many forms of sexual immorality, not all kinds of sex are sexual immorality. This is where we turn to my Song of Songs, folks. Now, the, the book of Song of Songs, for those who aren't familiar, is a pretty widely popular but also wildly misunderstood book within the Bible. And this book is actually pretty unique within the canon of Scripture because it's really a series of love poems. It's, it's a collection of love letters that is written back and forth between two lovers. And these poems are all about their love and their desire, specifically their physical desire, for one another. And while this book was originally written in the Hebrew language, the language of the Old Testament, this book is actually where we get a better picture of this Eros-type love that we're talking about. And anyone in this room who has ever read the book of Song of Songs, you know these lovers do not spare us many of the details when it comes to their physical relationship with one another. For example, the book starts by saying this, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. That last line means exactly what you think it means, people. <laughs> that is just the start of the book. And then for eight long chapters... These lovers go back and forth using words like your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. <laughs> your stature is like that of a palm tree and your breasts the clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Some of you in this room thought you were just getting weird DMs on Hinge. Now you realize they were quoting scripture. Completely inappropriately. Now, I want to be really, really clear. I do not show you these verses just to make you uncomfortable. I do not show them to shock you, but, but I, I introduce a book like Song of Songs to you because it's actually a great example of sexual love, this Eros-type love, being celebrated. Being celebrated as a good and beautiful 
an even holy thing in the Bible by God. It is to show you that while the Bible does have a lot to say about sexual immorality and the misuse of sex, sex itself is not inherently a bad thing. And it's also to show you that while the Bible does have books like Song of Songs that show a beautiful and faithful expression of sex, sex itself is not also an inherently good thing. But whether sex is good or bad, right or wrong, faithful or unfaithful, all of that depends on the context of the sex. That's actually why we have passages like 1 Corinthians 6. That's why a lot of those graphic stories in the Old Testament are told. It's because they're showing us the harmful implications of what can happen when sex is placed in the wrong or improper context. Like when sex is placed in the context of manipulation. Or the harm that happens when sex is placed in the terrible context of abuse. When it's put in the context of selfishness or commodification. But that's also why we have books like Song of Songs, because in it, God is actually giving us a picture of what God designed and desired sex to be in our lives. And if you want to know what the proper, faithful context for sex is in God's eyes, the clearest way that I've come to say it is this. Sex should be sacred. Sex is meant actually to be a sacred thing, a sacred, trust-filled intimacy-filled experience. That's God's design for it. This is why the traditional Christian teaching around sex is for it to exist and be practiced within the context of a marriage relationship, within the context of a lifelong covenant relationship between two people. Now, let me be clear. That is not to say that all sex that exists within marriage is completely healthy. That is also not to say that all sex that happens outside of marriage is completely wrong or unhealthy or manipulative or selfish. This is simply to say that God actually desires us to experience sex as a beautiful and sacred gift from God. And that happens best when we experience it also in the context that God designed it for. And I want to actually try and give you a picture of what this looks like in our lives. I want to illustrate it for you in a different way. And so I'm actually going to invite the band to come back out really quick. They tried to come out during Jeannie's vision slot, but I'm actually going to invite them to come out now. So we've, we've been talking about the context of sex, right? How sex itself is not right or wrong, good or bad, but, but God actually designed sex for you and I to experience it and even enjoy it within the proper context. And I want to try and illustrate what this kind of looks like for you, but I need you to just trust me and go with me for like four minutes. Is that okay? Okay, so um, everybody over here uh, in this little glass cage of emotion is, is Tim. Everyone say hi to Tim. Uh, Tim is our music director here at Soul City, which means every single Sunday he is leading this band and telling them where to go and what to do. But Tim is also not just one of my dear friends, he is also one of the best drummers that I know. And part of the reason that Tim is so good on the drums is because Tim is one of the best I've ever seen at reading the room. What he does from behind the drums is he reads what's happening in the moment and he responds by playing a little louder 
or by pulling back a little bit or by changing up his beat or his cadence in some way. He's so, so good at it. But let's pretend just for a second that Tim was not a very good drummer. Let's pretend that Tim could not read the moment at all and that sometimes Tim would just come out and start playing at random moments. Go ahead, Tim. Like imagine if in the middle of the sermon, Tim came out and just started bashing on the cymbal to the point where you might not even be able to fully hear or understand, certainly not be able to focus on anything that I was saying for the entire time. I imagine that that would not be, okay, so hold on, hold on. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. That's enough. So what just happened there for you while Tim was playing and I was talking? My guess is it was probably pretty distracting for you. It was probably uncomfortable. I feel a tightness in my chest, and I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> it might have even been painful for you to listen to. And I think that is actually a really good picture of what can happen when sex is placed in the wrong context in our lives, right? It, it actually, when we engage in sex in an unhealthy way, or an unhelpful and an unfaithful way, it actually, if you've ever experienced that, it becomes distracting from everything else in your life. It kind of feels like it's in competition. It overpowers every thought you have, every moment you have. When we engage in sex outside of the context that God designed it for, what often will happen is in the long run, it will leave us and others experiencing hurt in some way, experiencing some kind of pain. What we just experienced, I think, is kind of what sex is treated like in our culture in a lot of ways. Like, at 100, in your face, at all times, doesn't matter. And I think in response to that, the church has done a little something like this. So now, band, I want you all to play, but Tim, you are not allowed to make a sound. So, in response to what our culture has done, the church, for the most part, has tried to minimize or deny that there is a sexual part of you at all. They'd just rather you leave it out altogether. And I think you would agree with me that while this song that we are listening to, it works, like it's fine, but it also feels like there's something missing in it. It feels like perhaps we are not experiencing the fullness of what this song was designed to be. And the same is true for you and me if we just try to ignore or deny that there is a part of you that desires physical intimacy, sexual connection. And that desire, I want you to hear me, is not a bad thing. That is actually a desire that God gave you. And so a faithful approach to sex is not for you to minimize it, deny it, put it away. But a faithful approach to sex, again, is to take it and put it in the context that God designed it for. Because here's what happens when we do that. Go ahead, Tim, go ahead and play. Tim is playing the same exact thing that he played before. Only now, when it's put in the right context, it starts to work in rhythm with everything else. It starts to feel like how it was designed to feel. You hear it? Okay, very good. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You see what's happening? You see, when... When we actually take, and this goes far beyond sex, but when, when we take different aspects of our lives, including sex, and when we put them in the context that God designed them for, 
it actually starts to work in rhythm with every other part of our lives. Rather than feeling like it's overpowering us, rather than feeling like it's in competition with everything else in our lives, it actually starts to flow and work in rhythm. When we experience and engage in sex in the context that God designed it for, it actually changes the way that we hear and think about everything else. It changes the way we interact with others. It changes the way that we date. It changes how you engage with your spouse because now you're actually in the rhythm that God created your soul for. And I think, as I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks, I, it's my belief that because the church has been traditionally so silent when it comes to sex, and, and because our culture does not really teach us to think about sex or, or treat it in a sacred way, because of that, I think many of us probably have had relationships or experiences or seasons of our lives where if we were really honest, it just felt out of rhythm. Like it felt like something was off, there was this tension, and I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I think perhaps maybe one of the reasons why is because sex was being placed in the wrong context in your life. Whether in a relationship, or even just in the way you thought about it. I mentioned earlier how, for me, I grew up uh, in the height of purity culture. And for those who also grew up at that time, um, it felt like at that time that not just sexual sin, but sexual immorality, like, Anything that was remotely sexual at all, it felt like that was the worst possible sin that you could commit. And unlucky for me, I was also at that time a 16, 17, 18-year-old boy, which meant that I was experiencing all of these feelings. I had all this growing desire for, for physical intimacy. And, and I am not saying that this is what I was explicitly taught, but certainly what I got from my sexual education growing up in different faith communities was that anything that I did and even anything that I felt that was remotely sexual before I got married, that that was something I should be ashamed of. And, and so when I, like most young people, started to experience those desires, when I started to engage in different sexual activity in my teen years, whether what I was doing was in line with God's design or not, I experienced the sexual part of me, first and foremost in my formative years, as a thing to be ashamed of. Not as a sacred thing as God designed it, but as something I should do everything within me to ignore, and when I couldn't ignore it, then I better keep it a secret. And so for actually many, many years in my life, that was actually the primary context that I experienced. The entire sexual part of me was in a context of shame. And I don't know if I know a single person for whom that is not true to some degree. I don't think I know a single person, regardless of when or how they were raised, regardless of their past, regardless of their present. I don't think I know a single person who does not have some kind of feelings of shame when it comes to this area. And maybe that's how you encounter this topic. Maybe that's the context that sex takes in your life more often than not. 
because of past experiences or even because of you know, current habits in your life, you experience even a sermon about sex, you have been experiencing every word I've said in the context of shame. And if that's true for you, then I think the thing that I most want you to hear today more than anything else is that shame never comes from God. Shame is actually not something that God ever desires for you to experience around anything. Now, conviction around something? Certainly. Jeannie was sharing me before how guilt says I, I did a bad thing. Shame says I am bad. There's a real difference. Does God perhaps want you to experience an ache in your soul that leads you to repentance and change and transformation in your life? Absolutely. But shame never, ever, ever comes from God. Because Romans 8, chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that there is no condemnation, actually. Meaning there is no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you are in this room and you have or currently, or have any sort of experience of experiencing sex within the context of shame, or maybe pursuing sex in a way that you feel ashamed for, I just want to invite you today to just make, maybe make a little bit of a shift. To, to maybe take sex out of the shame category in your life. Because I'll tell you what, for upwards of a decade, that is the category that it lived in for me well into the beginning of my marriage, that is where it lived for me. It was in the category of shame. And instead, I just want to invite you today to believe that that is not the category that God wants it in your life, but actually to take it out of the category of shame and to put it in a sacred category. To actually believe that sex is a beautiful gift from God. And God desires for you to experience it in that way, within that proper context that God designed it for. And so what I want to do to kind of wrap up our time is I want to invite you to stand to your feet if you're able. Because as I mentioned before, at least in my experiences, a lot of the words and a lot of the messaging around sex that I experienced in church from people like myself a lot of those words were messages and words of shame. And so to wrap up our time today, actually, what I want to leave you with, when it comes to the sexual part of you, I want to leave you with words of blessing. Because that's what God desires it to be for you. God desires for that part of your life to be a blessing to you and to others. And so I wonder if you would just open up your hands, palms facing up, to receive these words. This is my prayer for you. May you carry with you a sacred vision of this sacred gift from God. May God give you a renewed vision for this and every part of your life as a part that is worthy of transformation. May you experience physical intimacy as a self-giving act of love, filled with reverence, filled with trust. May you honor your body and the body of another 
as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And where there is sexual immorality, let there be grace. Where there is pain and hurt, let there be healing. And where there is shame, let there be transformation. And we pray all of this in the good and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.